Hello, I'm Kristen Rawls. And I'm Jeff Eaton. This is Christian Rightcast. Christian Rightcast is a podcast where we contextualize the Christian right in America, explaining its uh, history and its ideas and the movements to help you understand its impact on American society and politics. And that is highly relevant these days, uh, considering the moment we find ourselves in uh, politically and socially. Um, now, over the past couple episodes, we've been laying some groundwork, um, talking about like our backgrounds, uh, brushing up against uh, the Christian right, or in some cases, researching and covering it as a journalist or being a part of it, in my case, um, and how we, um, how we came to understand it. Um, and after that, we spent some time breaking down some of the big ideological groups and cultural movements that are part of the Christian right. Um, but with this episode, we get to refocus a little bit and zoom in on some more specific stories, uh, some uh, some personalities. And uh, this might not be the one you're expecting, but I'm very much looking forward to it. If I guess if you could say that. Christian, <laughs> what is, um, what you today, today we're going to talk about Norman Vincent Peale, um, who was, the, well, this is part one, um, who was <laughs> pastor to uh, Fred Trump, to many uh, prominent businessmen, and who was um, sort of colloquially known as God's salesman. Now, um, okay, I always confuse him with um, the guy who played Grand Moff Tarkin in like the first Star Wars movie. But I that's not what he's most famous for, right? <laughs> I don't understand any of your cultural references. Um, that, that's the magic so, I bring to the show. Uh, um, so, um, <laughs> no, it, it's a different person. Um, today okay, okay. we're going to only get through part of the story. And I'm just going to say, first I'm going to talk a little bit about the two schools of thought that he comes out of and that really influence his teachings. So um, there's an American Gnostic vernacular religion, which I will explain more about, called New Thought. Um and also traditional Christian, and in his case, uh, Methodist evangelicalism. And and he like most people, if they have heard of him, will be will know him for like the the famous book that he wrote, "The Power of Positive right. Thinking." Right. Right. Okay. Um, and this is like the the prehistory of the power of positive this thinking. This is yeah yeah. <laughs> That's what this is going to be. Um, this is the deep lore. Yeah, and then after that, I'm going to talk about his political life, um, with an emphasis on um, his political impact as a member of what the historian Kevin Cruz calls the libertarian Christian movement. Be oh yeah, beginning in the 1930s and lasting at least until the 1950s and then reemerging for Peel in 1960 again in opposition to the campaign of John F. Kennedy and in a much milder and more muted form with quiet support for Ronald Reagan's 1980 campaign. And and that's where if folks were are referring back to um to the previous episode that's where like a lot of what we currently understand as like the christian right really started to like crystallize around that time period so yeah so this is a a, a fascinating backstory so okay take take okay. it away i'm right. i'm fascinated right. to learn more um so more about the spiritual movements that peel comes out of um 
So he is a he is uh, the product of a combination of two major influences in the history of American religion. Evangel- evangelicalism, which most of our audience will generally understand, and New Thought, which is a type of American metaphysical religion. For and these, yeah, I, I'm, I'm okay, okay. So, yeah, what what is uh, what what is a metaphysical religion? I'm gonna let me let me just briefly say uh, say what we mean by evangelicalism here, and then I'll, okay, I'm gonna okay. get into that. And so for these two distinctions, I'm drawing on the historian Catherine Albanese and her book Republic of Mind and Spirit, which really goes into the it, it is a complete history of of New Thought and of a, what she calls American metaphysical religion. So. Evangelicalism, in her discussion, uh, quote, favors the cultivation of strong emotional experience that is felt as life transforming. Religious change is sudden and the individual is emphasized. But so is the community, as in the collective Protestant cultural forms that become revivalism. So there's an emphasis on personal conversion and of religion as an intimate personal experience. And that's where like the the born again language that's so popular in evangelicalism really feels like it resonates with that. Exactly. Um, So individualism is is important, but it's also important to, as as an evangelical would say, share the good news of Jesus Christ. So... Um, evangelical individualism is going to be tied intrinsically to American individualism. Um, so that is, um, I think that, that most of our audience will kind of understand that, but we really need to talk in more detail about new thought because it's arguably more influential in his work, at least from the publication of uh, The Power of Positive Thinking in 1952 and on throughout the rest of his career. And because I don't think it's as clear to audiences what we mean when we talk about this movement. So um, New Thought, um, <clears throat> which Albanese call, uh, calls a part of what she calls metaphysical religion, um, has also been called religious naturalism or sometimes popular religion or vernacular religion. Um, the, the movements that have been associated with it are esotericism, Gnosticism, and occultism. Um, Albanese says that the focus of this type of religion, quote, turns on an individual's experience of mind instead of heart, as in evangelicalism. So metaphysical forms of religion have privileged the mind in forms that include reason, but move beyond it to include things like intuition, clairvoyance, and its uh, relatives such as uh, revelation and higher guidance. So it's sort of like where like evangelicalism is emphasizing this thing that happens in your heart and you're connected to God after that new thought is about like unlocking the power of your mind or thinking in new and different ways and unlocking this potential that you have or something. Yeah, exactly. So um, she's going to call this mind magic um, while others, uh, other historians have called it mind cure. The idea is basically that right thinking is, is a healer. Um, and so, oh boy. Okay. I, I feel like, 
I feel like I see a couple of twi- plot yeah. twists coming. But yeah. <laughs> carry on, carry on. So she she says that it emphasizes, quote, the attainment of states of contentment, self-possession, and mastery with the successful religionist, an exemplar of the spiritual, instead of a, either a missionary or an established social contributor. So individualism is privileged the same way as it is in evangelicalism. They're not as concerned with, you know, the common good as they are with the individual religious experience. And and, and I would imagine like if there is talk about the common good, it's more like what the benefits from to society would be if everyone could have this. Right, exactly. Okay. Um, so the goal is for the individual to use imagination and willpower to change the natural world. That's why she says it's a form of magic. Um, and it feels like this is really setting up the stage for the whole God, like salesman thing with him because this sounds like marketing too. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's why he becomes so popular with American businessmen. So, oh, okay, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, right. So um, the word metaphysical here is not used in the usual philosophical sense, which is concerned with fundamental questions about non-material things like being and existence. But it's more about practical philosophy um, that is allegedly both scientific and religious in orientation. Um, the interest is in what works, what is pragmatic, um, and what creates a happy and fulfilled existence for the individual. So it, it, so it sounds very like... <clears throat> maybe utilitarian isn't the right word, but very focused on like what ways of thinking and what ways of looking at the world will make things better for me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's sometimes um, associated with American pragmatic philosophy. So um, it spawns this metaphysical religion. It spawns a lot of different types of groups and practices. And the book uh, Republic of Mind and, and Spirit is fascinating, um, but I'll talk more specifically about what the strands of this that are going to influence Peel. Um, so the transcendentalist movement from New England and the writer Ralph Waldo Emerson ends up being a very strong influence. Um, so is Theosophy. Uh, which I need to define. Um, We've got a theosophical society building like in my yeah. town. I have oh. no idea what it is. No idea whatsoever. But, <laughs> I'll tell but you. Tell me what. Okay. okay. Um, it is a belief system that influenced both Christian science and new thought. Uh, Albanese defines it. She, she says it's distinguished from Christian theology with its pursuit of rational and discursive knowledge of the divine. Um, uh, it's seeking a knowledge of God that is direct and experiential. And um, she says it's interested in the connections between physical and spiritual truth, merging science and religion. So it's like less about studying theology and doctrine and like, what do the people who founded this religion believe and more like, um, I get like, like 
figuring out what makes sense to you and what cures your flu or and proving that it's science <laughs> in some way okay okay so is this like is this like the precursor to like the theological equivalent of debate me guys on twitter like sounds awesome. <laughs> i don't know okay yeah um... i i, I a fascinating picture is yeah. emerged. Yeah. So um, American New Thought is largely inspired by the work of Phineas Quimby, who was a healer and mesmerist, uh, an early hypnotherapist. I mean, he didn't, he wasn't a therapist, you know, a hypnotist. Um, when did Phineas Quimby live? Because that is like the most 1847 name I have heard. Definitely. Yeah. In the, in the 1800s. Yes. <laughs> so, um, Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian science was his student. Oh, um, okay. And in the context of its, I mean, when you think about the fact that this all emerged in the 1800s, it's easy to understand why some people like Eddie thought mind cure was a preferable alternative to medical intervention because medicine at this moment in time was not particularly advanced. This what if instead of leeches, I could exactly. think about my problem? Yeah, people were drinking arsenic potions. Um, earlier in Eddie's, in Eddie's life, they were getting surgeries performed without anesthesia. So... <laughs> it's a market ripe for disruption, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> Medicine, it was it was pretty scary at that. So it's easy to understand how this emerged as a product of that time. Um, and, and like the the what where these things come together is that like the implication of a lot of this new thought movement stuff mm -hmm. is that you could in fact like cure your illnesses or yes. you could fix those problems in you by exactly. thinking rightly yes. and like reordering your mind, right? That's that's exactly right. Um, okay. So I want to point out that the religion that she founded on this belief called Christian science is not technically considered new thought. Um, new thought would become a clear identity in the 1890s, and it was basically a split with Christian science. So, uh, yeah, Eddie... Even new religious movements have those. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, so Mary Baker Eddy was a ex pretty exacting leader who an authoritarian leader who consolidated power over Christian science through her Boston mother church, um, requiring all new members to join through that particular church. Um, she also trademarked Christian science, forcing all of the, oh, yeah, generic. The canny operator real mm -hmm. early. Yeah, on. yeah. The generic practitioners using a form of her teachings to stop calling themselves Christian scientists. Um, and, and ironically, to this day, insurance companies now will only accept the generics. <laughs> So this was based on a lot of different disputes, but the people who, who stopped calling themselves Christian scientists and became new thought um, or simply followers of religious science viewed Eddie as rigid and authoritarian while they saw themselves as a democratic, populist, non-hierarchical movement. Um, 
They were sometimes also open to modern medicine, which is forbidden in Christian science. Yeah, and and like that's even today, like Christian science still exists, and like it's one of those faith groups that is sort of a occasionally controversial, like exemption from like child vaccination laws and stuff yeah, like that. Is yes, it, is... yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, because that that would be a problem if you think that the real solution is to think rightly and, and stuff like that. Right. Right. Okay. okay. So um, Christian science and new thought, uh, which both influenced Peel were two rival movements um, and themes from American new thought and Christian science that we're going to see in Norman Vincent Peel's thinking. I'll, I'm going to list a few of them. Um you have you've come uh, you've kind of touched on a few of them already, but um, the idea that the mind has the ability to cure the body and soul, that this can be done through right thinking. Um, New thought uh, practitioners used to talk in very physics related terms. They would talk about spiritual changes in terms involving energy and motion. Um, and they would make a lot of physics related observations, which Peel does the idea. Uh, they, they were, they were the precursors of like quantum mechanics proved my zany theory. Yeah. People. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea is that there's a focus on movement from a, or energy from a poorer spiritual state toward a new one that, that brings about healing, reconciliation, uh, connection with God. Okay. So there's also the idea that people are basically good, not essentially sinful or damned, that they have the ability to attain a kind of God consciousness or to get in touch with a kind of inner divinity that brings them into relationship with God. Um, and finally, these are all, of course, heresies in, in evangelicalism. Yeah, but... I was going to say, it's like, that's that's one of the fascinating, like, flip sides to that. That is yeah. absolutely not okay as far as evangelicalism is concerned. Right. How they will weave together later is... It's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and there's also um, the sense that the desire for salvation is as a as a personal comfort um it that it brings therapy or healing so, so that it's it, so the idea would be like it's not so much that you are sensing that you are a sinful person and being drawn towards god it's more just like you have a need to fix something and that impulse is like uh, a security blanket in a way yeah it's not about getting saved and avoiding hell it's about bringing healing and it's a personal religion so it's a it's not really about changing the status quo although strangely enough a lot of early new thought leaders were socialists now eddie was not she trademarked christian science and got yeah, rich that, that, i was gonna say that doesn't sound extremely <laughs> socialist but the but... other new the, the new thought leaders that broke off many of them were women and they were uh, socialists and often leftists, but th because this is a personal individualistic religion, um, socialism and leftism is it's by no means intrinsic to this kind of thinking because 
a Christian libertarian like Peel had no trouble mapping it onto his own thinking, and it be would become really influential in the prosperity gospel movement. Okay, yeah, that, I, I was gonna say that it. I, I was already I was getting a whiff of that, but yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So so let's. I'm gonna talk more specifically about Peel now and who he was. Um, he was for somebody who was known for this gospel of positive thinking he was not much of a positive thinker himself um which which lead i'm i'll bet that is going to turn into a great conversion story at some point there are a few different conversion stories in which he says Uh, that his his mother no one of his parents uh at one point and um, and later, his wife, where they would tell him that he needs to work on his inferiority complex, and that he, and that he gets great healing from it. And so, um, he would say that his life's work came out of his own experiences, uh, and this is kind of true because he was a really sensitive and easily offended <laughs> and wounded individual, and he. He may have struggled with recurring depression throughout his life. Um, and what he and this is like, what, and, and time period wise, like he was he was born in like the late eighteen hundreds, right? Yeah, he was born in eighteen ninety eight. So okay, so like as the New Thought movement and Christian Science split, and then right. they have like some time. They they've got some time to like build up ahead of steam in the late eighteen hundreds. Right. And then Norman Vincent Peale is born. Yeah, and... these things are all kind of new at that time, and um, okay, and so. His childhood kind of affected his temperament in in a few very big ways. So first, um, his biographer, Carol George, says that he moved around a lot as a child. So his his father was a pastor in the Methodist church, which requires its regular pastors to kind of move to new churches every few years in order to keep the churches from becoming too personality driven. Uh, so it, yeah. but it, that, that I would imagine that turns like Methodist preachers kids into like the air force brats of like the ministry. Yeah. That's what I kept thinking about when they described his childhood. And I think this was um, pretty destabilizing to a lot of uh, Methodist pastor's families and definitely to to norman he was really shy he didn't have a lot of friends and he would never in his life he have a lot of close friends and he had a terrible fear of of speaking of public speaking um so this is the this the uh the inferiority complex he would talk about having later okay um he was, as a child, very aware of the politics of his father's church. Um, his He didn't have many friends, so his primary sources of interaction were with his family. And he was very aware of the politics that his father dealt with as a pastor. So uh, a lot of this came from the fact that Norman's father, Clifford Peel, did not have an undergraduate or a seminary degree. He was always a really committed Methodist, but he didn't have training to be a pastor. He had studied to be a doctor, which did not require an undergraduate college degree in the 1800s. Whoa, Whoa. <laughs> uh-huh. hold on. <laughs> so, so, 
Oh, it, it was yeah. a it was a, sep- it was a separate type of training. Different um, times. Yeah. So he he ended up practicing medicine for a few years and then deciding that he felt a call to the ministry. So he was kind of slighted as an inferior by the more erudite pastors who had studied theology. Um, he they looked down on him and didn't really want him in the denomination. So Norman was huh. yeah, Norman. Like Norman grew up in that kind of in, in that mm-hmm. like steep in that kind of politicking. Yeah, and he felt really sensitive to these kinds of slights as a child, and that may have had something to do with the lifelong resentment he would later harbor towards scholars of religion who he accused in seminary of, quote, doing too much philosophy, but never teaching him how to relate to people's individual experiences of faith. It taken in, it, taken as a standalone comment. Okay, that's, right. uh, that's, that's interesting. But where do you go with it, Norman? Let's right, see. so <laughs> he ended up having a lifelong resentment of uh, intellectuals, which was part of his of his populist appeal and it might have begun there with uh. um yeah with the feelings within his family that his father was disrespected in the profession by more educated people it's always been a solid like get ahead in america like plan to like make fun of eggheads right <laughs> um so another thing george notes is that uh peel thought he grew up poor although it's not really clear that in the context of the 1910s, he <laughs> was really growing up in terrible poverty. He grew up with parents who struggled financially, but it doesn't sound like he had to worry about hunger or a place to live. It was just that rural Methodist pastors didn't get paid that much and white women rarely worked. So... It was rare for the family to get new clothes and or new furniture. They weren't going on fine vacations. So they just So it was like they were they weren't like living living high or anything like that, but at the same time they weren't like in the depths of poverty either. No. They just didn't have the new things that they wanted and Norman didn't like that. Felt precarious and stressful to him and he didn't want to live that way. Okay. Um, I feel like all of the pieces are being put on the board here. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And he also grew up in a family of activist prohibitionists. Um, So a thing to know about the prohibition era, which I didn't really realize, is that it was seen as the, the political stand of white Protestant Christian America against this immigrant catholic influence that they thought oh boy yeah that they thought couldn't be trusted um so his father was a lifelong republican and he supported both the methodist church's push for prohibition and the anti-saloon league for prohibition um he the, the family were not drinkers because john wesley had warned against it um i'm gonna quote here Boy, wow that that goes way back right so they were they were really uh faithful methodists um and i'm gonna quote here from carol george 
who writes, the temperance crusade viewing urban immigrant groups as the heaviest drinkers came to symbolize a cultural struggle between Protestant rural residents and immigrant Roman Catholic urban dwellers. Uh, she says Ohio was the heartland of prohibition, prohibitionist sentiment, and it was the organizing home for the uh, Prohibition Party in 1869, the Women's Christian Temperance Union in 1873, and the Anti-Saloon League in 1893. So she writes, for evangelical Protestants like Clifford Peel, the prohibitionist movement became as much a religious as a social political crusade. And, Interesting. Yeah. And Clifford's wife, uh, but especially his eldest son, came to see it as their fight, too, with Norman cutting his political teeth on the literature of prohibitionism. So it's it's interesting, like, how many echoes there are in, like, uh, an ostensibly, like, social issue that could be seen as having a religious component, like, also turning into this, like... Um, nativist <laughs> yeah it's, it's like also like a nativist dog whistle issue that different threads all sort of you know tangle up in yeah i did not learn in ap u.s history that that's what it was <laughs> so um yeah yeah so um so that's where where a lot of these beliefs are going to come from so um it's in college that peel gets interested in new thought um he went to a Methodist university where he was one of the universities called a Wesleyan. I think it was, it's one in Ohio because his family, they didn't go all over the place. They just moved a lot around Ohio. Um, and he was having trouble with public speaking and confidence. And a professor recommended to him the transcendentalist Ralph Waldo Emerson for help with his confidence and to help him understand mind power. Um, another professor told him to ask Jesus to help him deal with his speaking problems and also to read William James. Uh, you know, I, 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 boy, that just brings back so many memories of bringing serious yeah. life questions <laughs> to uh to, to to, like yeah it's like well okay but so yeah so james was an early american psychologist who was also interested in these mind power cures at a time when psychology was beginning to see itself as a science and he had new thought influenced ideas so these two together influenced peel at an early age, and he became convinced that these teachings about mind power were necessary as this instrumental healing mechanism because they worked for him. And so, but, yeah, that, that is really fascinating, like especially like what you just mentioned, like the idea that even psychology mm -hmm. at that point was just kind of establishing itself as a real thing as yes. opposed to just a, a zany idea some people yeah. And psychology is, is influenced by new thought. If you have ever experienced any kind of cognitive behavioral therapy in which you are encouraged to train your thoughts to become healthier, you know, kinds of thoughts. Yeah, yeah. and like, and there's, there's, it's interesting the like the gap between like hey you have patterns of thought and you know as 
as a human being, you're capable of changing the way you think about things. Mm -hmm. And th there's a gap, though, where it feels like also maybe you don't need to get the flu anymore. Maybe you <laughs> could just think of, you know, it's like there, there's anyways. It, it, yeah, it, it's fascinating, like as these things are emerging and it almost feels like, you know, testing out their boundaries mm -hmm. in a field that there weren't necessarily a lot of established hard and fast lines around, oh, yes, clearly that's bunk and right. this isn't. Exactly. They were, they were experimenting with those things to figure out, well, maybe I haven't gotten the flu for several years after thinking better <laughs> about things. Right, right. Um, and when medical science is not that advanced, I mean, it, it can't hurt. So... Yeah. <laughs> Can't hurt to you know. Um, so he um, he worked shortly uh, as a briefly as a newspaper journalist after college, but he really quickly felt a call to ministry, or he felt his parents' pressure to become a minister. Um, and he was a pastor of three small Methodist congregations before he was called to Marble Collegiate Reformed Church in America. That's a very fancy name for a church. Um, I know. Um, so during this time, he developed a solid reputation for being this young, energetic pastor who had no personal life, and he divided, devoted all of his time to the work. Um, he brought in a lot of new people, and he was successful in the fundraising drives he organized and at developing relationships within the business community from with people who could donate large sums of money. Wow. So, he definitely sounds like a lot of congregations dream pastor. He was very ambitious and he didn't want to be poor because he thought he had grown up poor. So, um, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when he was called to marble collegiate church, it was this, small New York City church with only about 200 members. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, he was also asked to go to a wealthy uh, Methodist congregation in California because although membership was small, the church had a large endowment due to its membership in the Collegiate Reformed Church in America group, which is a group of New York Reformed churches which had an endowment. So the depression was getting underway. So he knew that although the Methodist church had more money at the time, they could lose it. And he wanted the financial security that Marble provided. So basically you've got all these pieces in place. He's, yeah. he's the popular, like no personal life, you know, just florid and, you know, make friends in the business community and, yeah. you know. Oh, he, he has, he and... has acquired a wife, Ruth Peel during the, oh, yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> so then, then he's so now, absolutely the perfect pastor. Exactly. So, so they guarantee, yeah, a pastor has to have a wife, right? <laughs> a male pastor. So they, uh, they guaranteed him a lifetime appointment, uh, which, gave him more security and they weren't, they didn't really care about the fact that he wasn't a Calvinist. <laughs> they just wanted somebody who could excite the church and bring in new people. And his only real responsibility there was preaching. So he wanted to have this public life and, um, and they would allow him to do that. So 
while he was a pastor in a, in the Reformed Church in America, he didn't really share a lot of its theology. He came huh. right. He came from this Arminian background in which free will was important, and he was not comfortable with the idea of predestination. Um, but this being a theologically liberal church and denomination, they didn't really care. So he switched his ordination. He moved to to the to the Reformed Church and moved to Marvel, where uh, he would be the pastor between 1932 and 1984. Wow, that's like <laughs> so that's long. In and and that's the period of time where he was the pastor for the Trump family. Yeah. Right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So that would be what he referred to as his primary job. But he was really there only for his preaching engagements. And beyond that, he traveled a lot. And in his first two decades at Marvel, he got into he ha he got a lot of criticism because of his political activism. So before he wrote The Power of Positive Thinking in 1952, the main thing he was famous for was being a right-wing reactionary. Oh um, boy. Here okay, here's here's where it comes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to talk about now. Um he wanted to stand up for what he saw as dwindling uh pro white I'm going to say white Protestantism. He wanted to change society in a way that brought both religion and politics together. Um, and there were times, so he, he wasn't always completely reactionary. Once he signed an anti-Franco statement, um, <laughs> once, wow, that guy, that's a low bar. This guy was, this guy's been around for so long. I know. Sorry. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. and he had at times supported very small labor campaigns, but he was a conservative who somewhat disingenuously always told the public that he was really an independent. He was a right-wing conservative from World War II on. And um, uh, George says that his populist religion and his conservative politics were mutually reinforcing efforts, um, which both relied on a constituent base of evangelical Protestant middle Americans. Their own post-war bid for acceptance, entitlement, and power, which has been termed an example of bourgeoisification, was what Peel thought had to be defended. And and that's interesting because, like, if you look at this, this is probably a little bit of a rabbit trail. We'll we'll probably have to dive into it in a different episode. But that idea of like moving up in class and moving up to a more respectable tier of the culture. Um, was that like tied in with the, the way that like fund American, you know, fundamentalism as a theological movement had really sort of been, I, I guess, laid low in yes. the like 1910s and twenties theological arguments. They'd lost that battle and were really kind of looked down upon in, in, in a lot of like mainstream, you know, mainline denominations. Right. But as they started reemerging, there was almost like this chip on the chip on the shoulder yes. about like not being the respectable intellectual Christians. Right. And also they had, 
um, experience the depression like everyone else. So, so, so this is really interesting to me, the way his politics evolve during this time, because he had, I, I'm going to talk about this more next week, but he had at the very beginning of his ministry, he started a clinic meant to combine religion and psychology with a real psychiatrist named uh, Smiley Blanton, where he did actually deal with poor people. So hold on. I'm sorry. Just a sec. His name was Smiley. His name was Smiley Blanton. Um, He wasn't like a con artist though, right? He was like an actual, he was a strange character who, (laughs) I I can't get over this. Okay. Who who basically Smiley Blanton went to, was, was also, was interested in using religion in psychiatry. And he basically went to Berlin right as, uh, as Freud was, was about to escape the Nazis after the the Anschluss in Austria, <laughs> and it to kind of co- try to convince Freud that there was something to spiritual healing. And that That's sounds like a really poor time to go and like make a pitch. <laughs> yeah, there was a time when um, Freud uh, wrote. Freud just said, "Why are you here?" And he like we're we're trying not <laughs> to die in a genocide. Yeah, and he just, just said. Oh, I just enjoy your company. It was just so it was it was just an example of an American being completely out of touch and unaware of what was going on. And um, so that's the guy he, he started the okay. clinic with. Just, um, and I, oh but boy. I'm bringing this up because so this clinic, it was always interracial. It was um, and this was, you know, this was oh, the oh. 1930s. Um, and he talked to poor people. And so it's just hard for me to understand how he could have had these politics the entire time. So he was involved in a span of about first span of about two decades in four different reactionary conservative political organizations. So during these two decades is when he became during the 1930s and 40s he really became famous for being on the political right and for having really bad political judgment um <laughs> yeah i mean his his business partner was a guy who could not read the room during <laughs> world war ii clearly yeah so yeah i guess that checks out um so when he did this he was excoriated in the press and by liberal theologians and he took it very personally he did not ever deal well with criticism and would become depressed because it really didn't look good what he was doing so um but but there were also right-wing publications that liked him so one journalist wrote peel has been a vigorous assailant of the new deal preaching eloquent sermons against bureaucracy official bungling muddling and meddling the invasion of individual rights wrecking of american traditions coddling the unemployed providing relief for the undeserving knuckling to union labor the menace oh God, of nothing a, is new nothing yes, is new in the no world. the menace of a third term for fdr um in fact the entire category of new deal sins as he sees them so yeah <laughs> oh, um man. So the first uh, organization he joined was called the National Committee to Uphold Constitutional Government. He joined in 1936 as a founding member. 
The program was uh, formed to oppose what they saw as New Deal overreach and to oppose FDR's alleged plan to pack the Supreme Court to get New Deal goals accomplished because the court was striking them down. Um, he ended up not being able to do that because the public was overwhelmingly opposed to it. Um, but Peel thought, he thought that the organization, which claimed not to be political, was a conservative alternative to the demagoguery of people like Father Coughlin, who he did actually oppose. But um, the committee was uh, marred in the public eye because of the uh, involvement of Edward Roomley, um, a German-American isolationist who was uh, suspected of being a Nazi sympathizer. Wait, how, how, how is everything always so much the same? I know. Okay, and, sorry. And Peel uh, saw him as a personal friend. So Brumley had a checkered history. He was convicted right after World War One. Sorry, World War One of some kind of treasonous uh, effort in which he took money from the Germans in order to influence American public opinion in their favor. Um, he coined the phrase "court packing plan" uh, to describe what Roosevelt was hoping to do. And he was convicted in 1951 for using this committee that they had formed to evade taxes in a decision that was later overturned by the Supreme Court. But he really looked like he was guilty and he was and he may have been doing some kind of money laundering through this organization. And, and this was like a pal of Peel's. Yeah. Yeah, and he wasn't willing to say anything negative about him. And um, I want to say there's no record of Peel himself being a Nazi sympathizer. And he opposed the most vocal Nazi sympathizers like Coughlin. Um, and Rumley's views were hard to pin down, but he was an isolationist. He had supported the America First, which was a fascist movement. And it was... um. It was impossible to operate in national right-wing circles in the 30s and 40s without running into an occasional Nazi. Uh, and, yeah, and that was an era when, like, there literally was an American Nazi party. Sure. And it hadn't been repudiated by association with, like, the Holocaust because that wasn't something that the public was aware of at all. It was yeah. just another party. Right. Um. Well, I think the American Nazi Party may have started a little later, but but there were there were several. Um, you you may be right about that, but there were several Nazi uh, adjacent groups operating in the U.S. at this time who were opposing entrance U.S. entrance into World War II, um, and he did so so. He, he did run into these Nazis because he was working with these isolationists who stridently opposed FDR and the New Deal, and this is what the right was. So, um, so in the first group, um, Peel was really the most respectable member. <laughs> That's something that he would even point out himself, and he 
frequently would talk of he would excuse his political involvements by saying he just tended to get involved based on friendships with people and he was he was naive and he didn't really know what he was getting into but he was an adult and he knew he, he knew who these people were so and, and and he was canny enough to have like a successful public speaking career and you know right. a congregation and stuff like that he wasn't like some right. he was not a babe in the woods being hoodwinked no. by no nefarious politicos but that was how he talked about it so the the second group he got involved with was called spiritual mobilization which was founded in 1934 by his friend james fifield he got peel got involved in the early 1940s uh his friend fifield said the organization was fighting against quote pagan statism by which he meant communism. So it was a far... That's an interesting euphemism. Right. <laughs> Not really a euphemism, I don't know. It was so <laughs> um it it was a it was a far right anti communist group which had backers who supported the fascist pro German America First campaign. Peel joined in nineteen forty four. This would be another thing that damaged his reputation. So he's really good at bad timing on these things and bad politics. In 1944, while he was a new member, the group advertised in a publication called Defender, which was, I'm quoting uh, Carol George here, a nasty anti-Semitic, anti-communist publication of fundamentalist Baptist evangelical Gerald B. Winrod. <laughs> so. Winrod, who was all, definitely a Nazi, was charged with sedition during World War II. Oh, boy. Um, yeah. yeah. That, that checks out. <laughs> so when the uh, the liberal public, uh, theologically liberal, socially liberal publication, The Christian Century, asked him about his involvement with, his ad, with this ad, he said he just didn't have time to talk about it. So, <laughs> wow, L- laying the groundwork for a whole generation of uh, Republican senators asked to comment on Trump's tweets as they walked on the Capitol. Exactly. Steps. Just too busy. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So Christian Century started refusing to take their ads. They had ta- allowed them as, you know, paid advertisements before. And at another time when he was at, he was brushed off of he was asked sorry asked about it he was he just brushed it off saying he didn't know that much about the organization so um during He's a super busy guy i don't have time to you know check out yeah. all of the weird neo nazi right. groups i <laughs> hang out with and during the time he was also criticized for speaking at an event with the american fascist elizabeth dilling so <laughs> he would la- he got a lot of bad press for this and he would later say he went as a favor to a church member after he first declined he said I don't like that kind of patriotism but he did admit it finally admitted at some point that it was a mistake but he was still trying to shift responsibility and when he was criticized in the press he was really defensive about it um, and he kept doing this. So he's, he, he got involved in a third organization, which was also started by Fifield. Tell, tell us about this organization. 
tell us about this organization. Yeah. So he, um, he, <laughs> he. I, I shouldn't laugh. These are these are terrible things. But like, yeah. there is it's just sort of, of like things. a Keystone Cops stepping into one rake after another quality. Yeah. To hearing it laid out like. This. Yeah. Uh, so the third one is it was started by Fifield, the guy who founded Spiritual Mobilization. It was called the Christian Freedom Foundation, and it started in 1948. So Peel was nervous about getting involved because of the spiritual mobilization criticism he got. And he was right to be because spiritual mobilization was the organization's main financial back backer, as was spiritual mobilization backer J. Howard Pugh, an American businessman, the founder of Sunoco Gas, and another Nazi-adjacent organizer. <laughs> okay, there, there yeah, we go. There we go. Who okay. opposed the formation of the United Nations. So, <sighs> right. Which, which we will come back to in a future episode when we talk about rapture fiction. Multiple and, episodes. This yeah, is... Starts as a an America first position, and uh, like the the idea that it, it's an anti Semitic position. So um, yeah, like the I, I read one of uh, Dilling's works was like the Octopus, which was a book that like laid out the theory that communism was a Jewish plot, right? To like wrap its tentacles around the world. <sighs> so like yeah, you know it 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 being like you know it 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 was a bad time. Right. In America, where like there was fertile ground for that kind of public like exactly. discourse, yes. But Peel just kept finding himself hanging out with right. these people. Yeah. So he and and no, I that I wouldn't use passive voice. He chose to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> so yeah, that that's true. Even though he tried to act as if he had just sort of passively stumbled into these things, um, so. So they decided because they knew that J. Howard Pugh would be controversial as a backer. They left his his name off of official documents and they asked Peel to be the chairman because he was more respected. Uh, he declined, but he still got involved. Um, and it was actually on a trip with Fifield for the Christian Freedom Foundation that Peel wrote the first draft of the text of the power of positive thinking. Oh, boy. So. OK, so, so like around what time is that? like what, what, what year are we? This looking? is, is this, um, like... this is around. I'm not sure exactly. Probably 1949, maybe 1949. OK, so like right post-war era it's like all this stuff yes. is still sort of rolling around mm -hmm. and peel is like just kicking around the draft of right. this book that is going to like essentially be his like his conceptual legacy yes so he is, so what they were they were in honolulu together to try to stop war uh union organizing there um you, you just sometimes you just gotta go to honolulu to stop a union yeah. <laughs> they were there to support right to work laws that banned unions because fifield said they had quote communistic leadership of course of course and yeah. peel yeah. told fifield the goal was to change the communistic people to bring everyone into harmony with the spirit and ideals of christ 
So the biographer Carol George says there's no real indication that they were successful in their efforts to quash Hawaiian labor organizing, but they did try. Um, And then between 1951 and 1953, he was involved in a group called Facts Forum, um, another organization formed to oppose the United Nations and specifically UNESCO. So he, so he did this deep opposition to like the United Nations is fascinating because like, I've known people who like didn't grow up like steeped in like Christian right and political right culture. Yeah. And they're just genuinely baffled by like why someone would be angry at the United Nations for anything other than being than like, wow, they're ineffective in some of the things that they try to do. Yeah. Like, other than that, why would someone be angry? But I'm like, I, I don't know how to explain yeah, it. Yeah, and it started like out it's... as an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Oh, really? Okay. So, um, so, um, so a member of Marble Collegiate Church who attended some gatherings of facts forum wrote to Peel that she was concerned she said, quote, there had been no opportunity to contest the anti-United Nations argument of the Facts Forum representatives or to debate the anti-Semitic of a address of a man so much identified with Nazi propaganda. Um, when he responded to her, he said, oh, well, the fascist speaker must have been a fascist or communist plant because... <laughs> Ah, so, okay. Uh, So, in 1953, he finally realized... There really aren't new arguments, are there? No, (laughs) no. No, and these were all arguments made before this. So, in, um, in 1953, he finally decided to resign, saying it was too controversial for him. He wrote... One thing that has been impressed upon me by those with whom I am associated in the church work and in my lecturing and and book publishing interests. So the book was published in 1952. Um, He wrote, and that is that my influence as a spiritual teacher and guide suffers from activities and endorsements in connection with projects in the social or political areas of thought. A.K.A. You know, you're hanging around with a lot of Nazi kind of people. <laughs> it might hurt book sales. Exactly. So, oh boy. Right. Um, so he stopped, and he he followed this advice more or less until 1960. Okay, yep, there it is. Yeah. When he made the very unwise decision to get involved in the anti-Kennedy campaign. So. Which harkens back to like the anti-Catholic uh, flavor. Yeah. And, it's coming oh, okay. right back up. Yeah. He knew. Oh. So he knew Richard Nixon and considered him a friend from back during the Eisenhower administration. Again, he never really had close friends, but he considers all of these terrible people his friends. So uh, this happened through his. They don't have any close friends, just terrible ones. Yeah, he's he he decided to join the National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, 
They were theologically opposed to he was a theological liberal who was heavily influenced by New Thought, but they agreed. And, and, yeah, and and like and and at this time, like you know, he, although he might have been politically conservative, like he was still considered very theologically liberal because of all of that other stuff that he'd that he'd picked up along. The yes, way. but they they invited him because of his reactionary politics. Um, well, of course. And so when he got involved, he just felt validated and approved of in ways that he had never felt welcomed by liberal intellectual theologians like Reinhold Niebuhr, who frequently criticized him. And uh, the anti-Kennedy campaign gave him a chance to let that old anti-Catholic sentiment out. So just just let the flag fly. So the so the de- de- debacle that he gets in with the the National Association of Evangelicals has a lot to do with Billy Graham. He became friendly with Billy Graham through the uh, NAE and also through this joint crusade this, that this they like- did. This is like a, a a Christian right Forrest Gump story. He's like in the background of everything. He's like yes. playing ping pong with Billy Graham yep. and like owns a <laughs> shrimp business with some Nazis. This I is know. So wild. he he uh he agreed to take part in a meeting of clergy members who were deeply concerned about the possibility of a Catholic president. This this was uh, organized by Billy Graham through the National Association of Evangelicals and he said he doubt he he so he went on some speaking engagements for this and he said he doubted that if Kennedy were elected he would be as quote free as any other Americans to give his first loyalty to the United States. Obliquely, he'll serve the Pope instead of well, the Constitution. And this also echoes. You know, anti-Semitic statements about serving Israel instead of the, you know, so, so, so this the, is the gonna, whole divided loyalty concept this, that's basically divided, put at yeah. the feet of anybody who doesn't fit with like normative American civil religious identity. White Protestant, right. So yeah. he, 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 this is kind of funny. He was outraged when Bobby Kennedy said he was um, so grateful for the generosity of their, Bobby Kennedy used the term non-Catholic supporters. Um, and, and Bobby Kennedy and, and, and Peel said that non-Catholic was like a Catholic supremacist, anti-Protestant slur. Those were not the words he used, but that's what he said. He said it was, yeah. It, yeah. It, so, man, if, if, if you have, if you have staked your self-identity on being a respected member of like a normative civic religious group, there is nothing more outrageous and offensive than being, than your group being referred to as non, like in via yeah. negativa rather exactly. than via positiva. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So um, in a meeting organized by Billy Graham, Peel was part of a committee which put together a list of talking points claiming that the Catholic Church had attempted to break down the wall of separation of church and state and that there is a religious issue. This is a quoting their statements, a religious issue in the present political campaign, which is created by the nature of the Roman Catholic Church, which is in a very real sense, both a church in a temporal state 
So like, so the argument they're making is basically the Catholic Church is attempting to break down the separation of church and state and take over the government by virtue of someone who's a Catholic running for president. Yes. So a bold move. Let's see how it works for him. So when he got off the plane where he had just gone for this meeting, the statements had been released and he was questioned by the press. Like just gonna turn off my mobile phone and uh, (laughs) let those sit there for a while. Exactly. So um, he uh, he was questioned by the press and he said that he didn't think Kennedy could possibly govern without influence by the Catholic Church. Uh, and he admitted when he was questioned that no Catholic lay people or clergy had been invited to the meeting. Um, the next day... I mean, it- yeah, it, one does wonder why. why <laughs> it, 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 right. Like, he, well, he didn't want to admit because he because he he tried to say, well, we, we were just talking about, you know, innocuous things like the possibility of having a Catholic president, and he was trying to make it sound apolitical, but he was questioned about it, and he was forced to admit, you know, because because of course no Catholic people would be invited. Um, and the next. It's, it's a meeting about how dangerous Catholics are. Exactly. You didn't invite any Catholics, obviously. Yes. So he okay. was he okay. was torn apart in the press. The liberal theologians Reinhold Niebuhr and John Bennett accused him of blind prejudice, which it was. Bennett wrote, what kind... They got him there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Bennett wrote, what kind of country do these Protestants want? A country in which 40 million citizens feel that they are outsiders? Um, the group... I mean, yeah. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. The group of ministers, which have been organized by Billy Graham, was called the Peel Group in the press. <laughs> And Peel started to see subscriptions to his magazine guideposts drop off. Wait, guideposts? Yeah, that's that's I'm gonna talk about that more next week. But he started guideposts, yeah. Okay. Um so he uh this is like the Forrest Gump story of the Christian right. This is amazing. Um so so syndicated columns in newspapers were canceled. He was so embarrassed that he canceled his speaking engagements of his own initiative. He ended talks for a movie he was planning to be involved in. So he he was full on canceled. This Kinda. was cancel culture. This was <laughs> um, yeah, cancel culture. And he offered to resign from Margaret Marble Collegiate Church, but they 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 didn't. They didn't accept his resignation. He just could not handle this. He hid in his house for 10 days and refused to come out. And when asked about it later, he said, I wasn't duped. I was just stupid. Um, Okay. Well, you know. Which still is trying to make excuses. Like he wasn't. He was too stupid to know what he was what he was doing. So it's like maybe you just had maybe you were just an anti-Catholic bigot and you need to deal with right. that. You know, maybe it was not just uh, maybe you were not just too stupid to be a public spokesman. Maybe right. you just had bad ideas. But he was 
really uh sensitive he like he could yeah. not deal with this he um ruth his wife ruth peel said of this time that she was hiding critical mail from him because it would throw him into another period of despondency without accomplishing anything and even nixon at the time who was his friend was like you know guys I, this is really not helping me <laughs> this is not helping the campaign maybe just lay off the catholic stuff <laughs> just like, just thanks for your enthusiasm however so um when when nixon tells you please just dial down the bigotry a little yeah. you know some important lines have been crossed right. um and it, this is so funny. He was so dramatic about this. This is what he wrote about that time. He wrote that he felt like a man who had a nice house, which was hit by a hurricane. And all he was able to do was extricate a few sticks and boards therefrom and build up a little lean-to at which to take shelter for bare existence. Uh, yeah, he but like the lean-to is a successful career and a home and a permanent job. He was job. a and millionaire by this point with multiple homes. And the hurricane was you deciding to basically slur Catholics yeah. in a public statement. This, in a yeah, way okay. that is really out of touch with the times. Like this was this was popular in it, the 1940s. It wasn't like turn of the century anymore. Or the it's 30s not... or 40s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's part but, you know, one. You but can... it was a hurricane yeah. that hit him. So you can see why I thought this needed two episodes. That's really part yeah. one. So, And next time we're going to talk about more about the huge influence that he has had on the world of evangelicalism. Um, uh, more of the, about the influence... Um, and the belief system he came up with in the power of positive thinking. Um, and I'm going to talk more about his thinking has effect, how his thinking has affected American culture and politics today. I oh, yeah. think, um, new thought style, positive thinking has a lot to do with COVID denialism today. And we know, oh. we know for sure that this is the case with the Trump family whose relationship with Norman Vincent Peale I'm going to also discuss in more detail. Yeah, so. cuz like I cuz I know I've heard about the fact that like, you know, the even Fred Trump, you know, attended Peale's church and yeah. you know, Donald Trump has talked about how, you know, you just go and listen to, you know, Peale speak and you could just listen to him all day and like so much uh, so so many of the patterns that you're describing and like how Peel responded to things feel like they are just such weird echoes of, Trump. of Trump's ways of dealing with things like the, oh, well, well, I, I guess that's what we'll get to next episode. Right. So I, I'm, I'm intrigued. So he largely does get, did get out of politics and it wasn't because he realized his politics were wrong. It was because he couldn't deal with the criticism of it. <laughs> and he always got criticism because he had horrible political judgment and was, was too friendly with a lot of fascists. So it, it turns out you have to be really good at being bad 
and have a thick skin to pull it off for a long time. Right. And it sounded like he just he was he was just like tactically bad at it and right. had a very thin skin. I want to add one thing. The funny thing about the the um the the thing with the 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 peel group that Billy Graham had had organized is that um billy graham did refuse to say anything and he just sort of slid out of being accountable for this um (laughs) i know and when asked about it later he even called he called it the peel group and implied (laughs) phone who's this (laughs) implied that it had been organized by peel which i think is hilarious and and at one point one of his evangelical interlocutors wrote back and was just like that's not really how i remember it and then (laughs) after several back and forths he finally said you know what i think i might have misremembered that uh you're you're right like but like that was well (laughs) into the era when like billy graham was becoming like the nation's preacher right yeah billy graham is i think he comes on the scene about 10 years later than peel um they're very different theologically but they they come into a lot of contact because of their political beliefs um and friendships with richard nixon so yeah well i i have this has been a roller coaster ride (laughs) and i feel like we're like i feel like it was this like super dense dive into uh, sometimes like kind of grueling like tough theology not tough to understand as much as like it can be difficult especially for people who've been close to it yeah to like deconstruct that theology and unpack it but this feels like just like a classic like watching show bob step on rakes kind of sequence yeah for me so it feels like it's been a great palate cleanser and a fascinating (laughs) like setup so yeah um, i am very much looking forward to next episode yeah me too this was fun um, okay. And for, for everyone who's listening, um, thanks for joining us and listening. Um, if you want to read uh, show notes, um, we you know every episode we pull together um, links and reference information about the stuff that we've been covering. Um, so if you want to subscribe for updates, see the show notes, um, or subscribe, support the show, whatever, you can find us online at rightcast.substack.com. Or you can also search for Christian Rightcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your podcast app of choice. We're now listed on all of those things. And uh, you can also find us on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash crightcast. And uh, we're uh, looking forward to hearing from you. And uh, we'll bring you more about Norman Vincent Peale and the the ripple effects of uh, his ideas. All right. Thank you so much for listening. 